1: Ryan, welcome to Real Vision. Thanks, Ash. Great to be here. It's great to have you. You know, we were talking a little bit uh, before we got started about uh, our journeys into the crypto space. Tell us a little bit about your background.
2: Well, I went to computer science school in Canada, and from there, I've done a, a tour at some startups uh, about ten years ago uh, at Amazon.com, and from there, I went to uh, a wonderful fintech startup in Manhattan where I cut my teeth in uh, in finance. And uh, while I was there, I just uh, my love for crypto, which had been in the back burner for some years, had really uh, uh, flourished, and I just I had to get involved. So I,
1: I've been full time in the space now for for a few years. So tell us a little bit more about the details of how you got involved in the cryptocurrency space.
2: Well, when I was in computer science school, we were in a computer lab late one night and uh, started playing around with the Bitcoin software and. Uh, because we were in school and in the thick of the theory it was immediately obvious to us that it was novel yet we didn't buy any we didn't save our wallets uh it wasn't that time you know otherwise uh, i probably i probably have you know my my jeff bezos mega yacht behind me instead of instead of where we are today uh but having been bitten with the crypto bug fairly early on I, I had the advantage of always knowing it wasn't, you know, a scam, and that there was novelty. Uh, and so, over the years, as as Bitcoin grew, uh, I, I still wasn't invested in a major way. And we we saw we saw that more and more stakeholders were getting involved. That these, you know, there was evidence that these open networks uh, might be the future. And then, along came this fellow named Vitalik Buterin, and Vitalik had this idea that great, the novelty of Bitcoin is that we can now make a public computer network that is a a consistent, reliable system, even if up to half the participants are malicious or incompetent. And Vitalik says, let's glue an app platform to that. Let's make an app platform where you can run financial applications, different kinds of applications, and let's put it on the blockchain. And at the time, I was very lucky to to watch his launch webcast uh the day of mm. and uh i had an opportunity uh which i did not take to participate in the ethereum crowd sale <laughs> uh, so i let the crowd sale sail by uh and for a few years i uh watched with great interest as ethereum began to take shape and early apps were written and mainnet was launched and it was just so exciting and uh Eventually, uh, when I was working at a, a fintech in, in Manhattan on uh, uh, consumer consumer finance, uh, totally traditional, nothing to do with crypto, uh, there was a catalyst, and I realized I'm an investor. I can get into this. This is going to change the world, and I took action and I, I heavily invested personally over over the following years, and and now I've been. Uh, I've been an active community member for several years, and uh, it's just been an absolute joy, Ash, to watch this space come together. And, you know, those of us who are closest to it believe that it's going to change the world and provide dignity and open access to financial services for billions of people. So it's just been a real pleasure.
1: You know Ryan that's so elegantly said. Sometimes it's hard to get a view of the big picture, uh, but I think that brings it into focus very clearly. Tell us a little bit now uh, about what you're doing as an investor and also as a community member in the Ethereum space.
2: As an investor and and not a trader, I focus exclusively on concentrated bets over the long term and in particular Bets, where I believe the thesis for both growth as well as defensibility, are unambiguous. Where I get a certain sense that the unknown unknowns may be of reduced scope or at least manageable. Uh, or there's some sense that there's this evidence that even as this thing gets big, we have confidence that nothing's going to swoop in and take that opportunity, that you know that premium uh, from our investment. And as a result, I focus primarily on uh, investing in independent blockchains. Uh, and my most concentrated investment, you know, call it call it over ninety-five percent of my crypto portfolio is in Ethereum. And as an independent investor with no LPs or board members or or uh, anyone that I that I owe uh, a consistent narrative to, I can change my mind whenever I want. And and so as a community member, I spend my time essentially, on public education, as well as avidly reading about all the aspects of the space that may affect the ETH investment thesis. And every morning I wake up and I, I grab my coffee and I say, what's going to derail my crypto portfolio today? <laughs> and I, I bring that open mind. And I, I I read about the the app layer projects. I read about competing blockchains. I read about the latest Ethereum research. And what's remarkable is that there's basically almost no yellow flags and, and and a lack of red flags it just keeps getting better and better and and more and more defensible so uh it it's been really cool to watch watch it grow and as a community member, uh, I've really pivoted towards public education uh, in in the form of uh, long-form Twitter threads trying to uh, come up with original ideas, move the space forward. Uh, most recently, with our report, ethereumcashflow.com, uh, which uh, is just a four pager that describes how we believe Ethereum is transitioning from being a confidence based investment opportunity into a cash flow based investment opportunity. So, you know, somebody call Buffett because we think Ethereum is going to be just printing money for, for Ether holders over the next few
1: years. Yeah, that's really interesting. A ninety percent concentration obviously is a very substantial uh, concentration in one particular asset. So tell us a little bit more about that. We'll get into the report in a few moments. Uh, but when you think about uh, this, is something that's a longstanding thesis of yours. You mentioned two characteristics specifically: growth and defensibility. What is it about ETH that gives you the sense that the growth and defensibility is there to such a great degree uh, that you'll concentrate at ninety percent levels in it?
2: When it comes to Ethereum's growth, what really clicked for me is that the nature of the Ethereum blockchain and the apps you can build on it is truly novel and valuable. And so we had a sense that over the years, as long as the supporting elements were in place, we feel confident that that, that growth is going to occur. So, what, what is the novelty and what are the supporting elements? The novelty is that Ethereum as a world computer effectively cannot lie.
1: Can you explain that to people who may not be uh, have computer science backgrounds? What does that mean?
2: For sure. When Satoshi Nakamoto invented Bitcoin, they, you know, he he or they invented a system whereby for the very first time in history, a public network of computers could be trusted even if up to half the participants were malicious or incompetent. Now, Ethereum comes along, you know, founded by Vitalik Buterin, and they had this, Ethereum had this insight that, wow, we can do what Bitcoin did from a reliability standpoint, and we can turn it into a computer. We can turn it into an open access public utility that anyone who pays the fee is able to create their own application or use an existing application, either as an end user or a middleware provider, completely open access world computer. Now, what has what followed from that is this idea of, of credible neutrality, which, which is this transformative world-changing idea that we think folks are going to be talking a lot about over the next few years. Credible neutrality is the idea that If you're a small country in Europe and you have an agreement with a much larger country, say it's America, and two years into that agreement, America decides that they want to change the rules of that agreement. You as a small country have limited recourse. It's an asymmetric relationship with America. Ethereum offers the promise of changing that because the terms of the agreement can be encoded on the Ethereum blockchain including for example, financial recourse, where if if certain conditions aren't met, you gain the ability to claim a payment from the counterparty and any other manner of clever uh, recourses and mitigations. And so credible neutrality is gonna usher in a new era of a level playing field of global trade prosperity among nations and mega corporations It'll be almost like there's an independent nation living on the moon. And we can say, excuse me, independent nation, can you please be the arbiter in our disagreement? Can you please enforce the rules of our game? And Ethereum has the ability to do this, and it has the ability to do it at scale. And it turns out that the kinds of force-based recourses, you know, things like, I have a bigger military, so. I'm going to get my way. It turns out that the Ethereum blockchain doesn't really have a lot of exposure to that. And so this idea of credible neutrality is going to allow uh, the world's mega corporations and governments to come onto Ethereum and do their business on Ethereum in a way that offers an unparalleled level of transparency, level playing field, as well as novel capabilities that are just straight up better than the current financial system. So an example of those two capabilities would be Instant Settlement, where when we're on Ethereum and we hop over to uh, Uniswap.org, uh, and uh, Uniswap is the most famous uh, crypto app today, and it just it lets you take one token and swap it for the other token. And when I execute that swap, and I pay a transaction fee to Ethereum that later this year will begin to accrue to the holders of the Ethereum token Ether. That's an instant settlement transaction. There's no T plus two there. That's it. It's done right away. And as a consequence of instant settlement and programmatic finance, it, it creates a, a robustness and a, a uh, almost like a lubrication for the whole system to be kind of faster and tighter. A great example of that is that uh, in a recent crypto drawdown where the prices of uh, popular tokens crashed 50% in a day, the whole Ethereum blockchain was humming with liquidations and uh, adjustments, and none of the major apps broke. There was no need for a bailout. There was no need to call the Fed and ask them to print money to uh, save us from, from this drawdown. The whole system simply worked. And a lot of us find that deeply appealing. Uh, and we think it's the
1: future of finance. You know, that's a very uh, good big picture description of strategically what's happening, uh, why it's important. I think for many people uh, who remember the 2007, 2008 financial crisis, the point that you made uh, about having a financial system that works without intervention is something that is. Really resonant uh, with those of us who were watching and covering that crisis, and certainly for people who were participating in it. Give us some more examples, a little bit more detail about some of the applications for this, uh, kind of at the tactical level uh, that people can understand uh, in terms of what the functionality is.
2: Right, Ash. In crypto, in Ethereum, uh, there is uh, a mechanism called a flash loan. What's a flash loan? A flash loan is the idea that because of the magic of the Ethereum blockchain, for the first time in history, we're actually able to have a a type of loan that has literally zero risk of credit default. And where it comes from is this idea of Ethereum transactions. Now, if you have a technical background or you've talked to your your database uh, person once or twice, you may have heard the phrase database transaction. And All that means is that you're doing a series of operations on a computer, and they either all take effect as a unit, as an atomic set of operations, or none of them do. That's the idea of a transaction. And interacting with the Ethereum blockchain and Ethereum applications works the same way. You start a transaction, you do your token swap or your arbitrage or your your borrowing or whatever it is you'd like to do. And then you end your transaction and the whole thing takes effect on the blockchain, on the Ethereum blockchain as a unit. A flash loan is the lovely idea that at the beginning of our traction, uh, pardon me, at the beginning of our transaction, we can borrow like $50 million or $500 million. And we can use that 500 million for the series of operations in our transaction. And most popularly, this is arbitrage but it doesn't have to be. And then at the end of our transaction, we're going to go ahead and pay back the 500 million. And we've actually just borrowed $500 million inside a single Ethereum transaction. And the way that the flash loan facility is coded in the Ethereum blockchain, it will cause your Ethereum transaction to fail and revert and roll back unless you've paid back the loan. And that, that's how we're able to borrow $500 million instantaneously with literally zero credit risk. So pretty, pretty novel stuff.
1: Yeah, this is a fascinating point. And for people who have financial backgrounds, rather than technical backgrounds, this notion of the collateral being secured on-chain and being programmatically executed in the instance of a technical default uh, is something that I think for people with finance backgrounds, people who remember uh, 2007, 2008, the 2011 European banking crisis, this is something that has a great deal of resonance.
2: Oh, certainly. And it, it speaks to the anti-fragility of uh, the Ethereum execution model. And another thing it speaks to is how Ethereum, uh, by reducing transaction costs and uh, creating novel capabilities, is enabling completely new forms of, of labor models. And I'll give an example, Ash, around the arbitrage space. Prior to the invention of flash loans, in order for uh an individual contributor to be an effective arbitrageur. So they they wanna cause prices, uh, there's two different markets and they want the prices to line up in those markets. And they're they're helping out uh, in terms of price discovery and they're also making a little buck themselves uh, as they correct these prices. And if you wanted to do that at scale before the invention of flash loans, you needed three things, a plan, capital, and a seat at the table. With flash loans, which are available to anyone, and the open access model of Ethereum that it's a level playing field that anyone can use, we've eliminated items two and three on that list. And so uh, a smart person with the math background, who's just a lone lone wolf in their apartment, they can make a state-of-the-art arbitrage system and they don't even need their own capital these days because they're, their arbitrage program is able to borrow that 500 million, and it it can be that amount. You you could borrow a billion dollars in a flash loan, and then you're able to be an arbitrageur on your own terms without your own capital. And so-
1: but let me just let me just ask. So, so when you're talking about the absence of capital, give us a little bit of an explanation for why that uh, is possible. Because I think a lot of people are going to be baffled uh, when they, particularly if they come from the traditional finance side, when they hear uh, the idea that you can somehow get a 500 million dollar loan. That has to be collateralized by something. Uh, there has to be something backing it. Tell us a little bit about how that works
2: within. As I understand it, and I don't have a traditional finance background, but as I understand it, there's this idea of arbitrage and dirty arbitrage. And dirty arbitrage may have some uh, potential uh, volatility risk in terms of you've entered into an arbitrage position that if the prices change under you while the position is open, it will cease to be an arbitrage position, cease to be an arbitrage play, and become something more like a regular investment.
1: This is the difference between riskless arbitrage and, and risk arbitrage.
2: That's right. Within crypto, there's two classes of riskless arbitrage. And the first is going to be very familiar to those with a financial background. And the second is brand new, enabled by flash loans. And it takes the concept of risklessness to, to new heights. In traditional riskless arbitrage in crypto, you might buy buy on Coinbase with your with your robot software, and then you're gonna sell on another exchange such as Binance or FTX, uh, and you've done this instantaneously, and in the traditional finance world we would consider that as, as riskless arbitrage
1: yeah, and just for just set this up for people this is about price discrepancy you see something uh, that's selling at one price on exchange x at another price on exchange y uh, if x is lower than y you can buy on x and sell instantaneously on y and capture that profit uh, and ultimately from a from a market function uh, that helps to level prices make them more efficient and gives greater liquidity
2: that's right and As DeFi on Ethereum has matured, we've seen that multiple kinds of so-called on-chain trading facilities or decentralized exchanges uh, have, have grown up on the Ethereum blockchain. So, Just as in the traditional crypto finance world, we have Coinbase and Binance, which are two different corporations, two different exchanges that run crypto exchanges and those two exchanges may have price divergence that enables arbitrage opportunities, we're now seeing the same thing. Well, really now for, for many years, but it's really flourishing and maturing now and growing. We're seeing that on-chain in the sense that there are two different, you know, or, or a dozen different on-chain decentralized exchanges, and as their prices diverge, arbitrageurs are able to step in and correct those prices by running Ethereum transactions. And where the flash loan comes in, Ash, is if I'm doing my arbitrage with Coinbase and Binance, I need to have my 500 million balance on Coinbase and my 500 million balance on Binance, and then I later have to reconcile those cash flows if too much of the money goes in one direction or to one exchange. On the Ethereum blockchain, because it's a single cohesive computer, that the whole world shares. First of all, my money's not in two places, it's just in one place. It's just on Ethereum. So if I have my 500 million dollars, it's it's on my Ethereum account and as I run new Ethereum transactions, I'm able to choose what, you know, hey, I want to take my 500 million and I want to spend it on decentralized exchange A or B or C or all of them at once in the same Ethereum transaction. But with the invention of flash loans, I don't even need my own five hundred million because I can start in it my software can start an ethereum transaction, borrow five hundred million in a flash loan, buy the asset on decentralized exchange a, sell it on decentralized exchange b for a small profit, pay back the five hundred million you know with a say a three basis point fee, and then I close my transaction and and so that's a an arbitrage transaction that's very similar to traditional riskless arbitrage, except right. it it quite literally is in a single Ethereum transaction that executes as a unit and confers zero credit risk on the folks who lent you that five hundred million for your arbitrage plan. So yeah. pretty pretty world changing stuff.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads.
1: Yeah, let me say it another way and see if this is uh, if this is correct. So basically, the reason that you're able to borrow the 500 million is because you're essentially guaranteed to be able to lock in those prices, uh, and because it's a single ecosystem, if you know that you can buy uh, at X over here and sell at Y over there, you know that because it's part of the same ecosystem that that transaction can be secured across the way. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, these are really big ideas. This is a, a the kind of like mental shift. I mean, just we were talking, uh, I was talking actually uh, with Jim Bianco uh, a few days ago, who's someone who has a traditional finance background, uh, who has gotten involved in the DeFi space. And he was talking about the mental shift uh, that's required to jump from an order book perspective to a liquidity pool perspective, and just different views of trading and how very uh, often it's just difficult for people, especially investors uh, who have spent decades uh, in the traditional financial space to make that kind of mental leap. And the kind of mental leap that you're talking about here, Ryan, it's a big one for people to get their heads around.
2: It certainly is. Uh, What we can say is that we've never met a serious person who wants to learn more about crypto. And as they've dived in, they haven't been very much rewarded with the knowledge they've gained and and the change in perspective and you know the associated building of confidence in the ethereum investment thesis so you know for those who are thinking of of taking the plunge to putting in the time to to really really exploring the differences between some of the traditional financial abstractions versus the new stuff going on in ethereum that's going to be a very rewarding journey for you and you know to speak to the specific example you gave ash uh in the traditional finance system, we most closely associate exchanges and, and trading systems with order books. I open an order, I close an order, I, I partially fill an order. Now, on the Ethereum blockchain, because the transaction capacity of the blockchain, the the bandwidth of the blockchain is limited to maximize decentralization and maximize credible neutrality so we can all put our money on there and sleep well at night. Because there's that limitation of its bandwidth, the fees to use Ethereum have grown quite large, quite high. And it's our expectation that they'll continue to grow. And so it's necessitated uh, new models of financial interaction where we're saying, OK, I simply can't afford the fees to open and close my orders 10 times a second, as I might in high-frequency trading on Wall Street. So instead, we're going we're gonna to find ways to create effective exchanges, effective trading systems right. that require less active participation by the liquidity providers,
1: and this is precisely the point, and it's such an important one about this mental shift between order books and liquidity pools. Effectively, I mean, the sort of the short explanation for this is the transaction fees uh, for entering and canceling orders in the case of HFT uh, on a traditional order book are absolutely microscopic. Uh, whereas on Ethereum blockchains and other blockchains, uh, the cost to secure the network is higher, as right of right now, uh, we're in a proof of work system on Ethereum. So the idea is that you need to find a different mechanism uh, to execute for the market microstructure in order for this to work. And I think this is such a fascinating point. Tell us a little bit more about what that means from a technological perspective and what that means from a market uh, microstructure perspective. And then ultimately, to your point about the report and the research that you've done, what it means from an investment perspective and how this changes the economics of the ecosystem.
2: Because of the high fees, on Ethereum, and, and the fact that the bandwidth of the Ethereum blockchain is, has always been saturated for years. So it's not, it's not a question of incremental bandwidth, it's a question of okay, there's a fixed amount of bandwidth. How do I want to purchase my allocation of bandwidth so that I can maximize my impact, my exposure, my profit from using the Ethereum system? And what's really fallen out of that rabbit hole of research and development is this idea of an automated market maker liquidity pool. And in an automated market maker liquidity pool, uh, there, there's, some, there's some market that, that could have uh, two assets trading in it. It could have more, but typically it has two. So we might say, all right, we have Ether, and then we have USDC, the US dollar stable coin. And we're going to put them together in a liquidity pool in an automated market maker. And as a participant of an automated market maker, I'm agreeing to offer my liquidity for sale to the market at a price that's described by the mathematical equation inside that automated market maker. So that automated market maker has some kind of rule inside of it that says, Today, I'm willing to offer one Ether for 3000 bucks. If you take me up on that offer and you, you're going to buy an Ether, I'm going to adjust the price up to $3,010. It's going to go up 10 bucks, And that, that curve that describes how the price of Ether rises as people buy it inside this liquidity pool vehicle, this automated market maker vehicle, as a liquidity provider, I'm accepting that curve. I'm saying that I can't afford to pay fees to open and close my order book, uh, my orders on an order book all right. the time. Not only can I not afford it, I don't have expertise in that. I don't want to do that. I'm not, I'm not ready to actively manage. Instead, I'm going to accept the curve, the, the mathematical curve that's inside this liquidity pool vehicle. And that's going to enable me to spend my human focus on other projects because it's not an active management strategy. And it's going to shield me from high fees because the whole system just takes care of itself instead of requiring me to continually submit new transactions to update my position on the Ethereum blockchain.
1: You know, I think about this probably a little bit too simplistically uh, just as the dif- the difference between two different systems because it's very uh, inexpensive uh, to execute on a limit order book uh, you can do things in a certain way uh, but on ethereum because of the transaction costs you have to do things in a different way uh, so each has its own strengths and weaknesses uh, and the strengths of uh, a liquidity pool which you don't have uh, on a traditional order book is the ability to have this world computer that serves as a trustless system system, where if you enter uh, into a particular liquidity pool, you can basically lock that in uh, and have it waiting, sitting there uh, for the price that your uh, action that you describe to take uh, effect and know that it will programmatically be executed uh, at precisely the parameters that you describe. And you don't have to trust anyone to do it. There doesn't have to be a trusted third party that sits in the middle. Uh, This is something that everyone uh, who is on the chain has equal access to.
2: That's right. It's a level playing field that if you pay the fee, you're able to provide your liquidity. And not only is this a passive strategy that you don't have to pay fees to manage, but it also provides you with a level of certainty never before seen in the history of finance because you know exactly at what prices you'll be selling what amount of the underlying asset. And you also know that the liquidity pool system cannot lie cannot break, you know, so long as it's a secure smart contract, which which involves an audit process and and being battle hardened over time. But to the extent that these automated market maker systems are, are durable, and for example, Uniswap is extremely trusted and, and durable, you just you know that you can opt into it and it's going to follow the rules. And incredibly, it it does this all without someone sitting in an office somewhere guaranteeing your position it's just done by the system there's there's no there's no middleman the system the software is the middleman
1: yeah you know, I think, Ryan, sometimes this is actually easier to show an example of uh, rather than to describe because it sounds a little bit abstract. But let's walk through a case. Uh, you use this example uh, of Ethereum and USDC, which I think is now uh, the most popular pair on Uniswap. Walk through what it might be like uh, for someone who is a liquidity provider, an investor might be another way to say that for someone from the traditional finance space who has $100 in Ethereum and has a desire to earn some yield on it.
2: Certainly. So uh, if you have $100, uh, first off, that's not nearly enough money to use the Ethereum blockchain directly because of the high-fee scenario. And the the good news there is that Ethereum is scaling now. Ethereum is going to be very scalable. We have uh, uh, an ecosystem of so-called layer 2 providers that are coming online to provide uh, 50x to 250x reduced fees, but still the same set of financial opportunities. So to to start with our $100 example, soon enough, you will be able to execute the strategies we're describing with low fees on Ethereum. So Ethereum scaling, and that's a wonderful thing. And back to the heart of the example, if we want to put some money into a liquidity provider, uh, well, in these pools, it's a two-asset pool. So you're not able to put just a single asset in 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 the regular model. So if if I want to put in uh, I want to participate in the Ethereum and USDC liquidity pool, I'm going to need say $100 of Ethereum and $100 of USDC and then I take that $200 of assets and I put it in the liquidity pool and then as users as traders come and swap tokens back and forth I am going to earn transaction fees. And at some point in the future, six months, two years, I go ahead and withdraw my liquidity position. What what, The bet that I'm making as a liquidity provider is that the, the fees from the trading that are paid to me will offset any potential losses that I would get from essentially being on the losing side of trades where the active traders are are trading in the direction they think the market is moving.
1: As you make this shift uh, from developer to investor, you mentioned earlier uh, that you didn't see any red flags or indeed any yellow flags in the Ethereum space. What are some of those flags that you're looking for, and why would those flags, if they were to arise, show some element of risk?
2: Certainly, at this stage, we think there's uh, a few main risks that are in various stages of being de-risked. The biggest risk facing the Ethereum ecosystem is that later this year, we are switching from the energy intensive, environmental unfriendly, proof of work mining system, which is very similar to Bitcoin mining, and we're switching to proof of stake.
1: Yeah, many people have heard of this because of Elon Musk's comments uh, talking about moving away from Bitcoin because of proof of work and the energy consumption component. That's
2: right. And Elon Musk's comments come in an interesting time because the Ethereum community is five and a half years towards a six-year uh, into a six-year process of a planned upgrade to make Ethereum environmentally friendly as well as more secure and much more profitable for holders of the Ethereum token and later this year we're going to take the airplane that is ethereum that's flying through the air that did 1.6 trillion in settlements in q1 of this year and we're going to we're going to switch its engine from the proof of work energy consuming engine to the proof of stake engine and all evidence suggests that proof of stake works and that is a transformative technology that is going to dramatically uh, set ethereum up for the next you know the coming decades as it grows to global ubiquity however there's a risk that a researcher that nobody's ever heard of comes out comes out of left field and they find that there's some kind of problem with the proof of stake system that can't be fixed nobody thinks that's going to happen but because proof of stake is not yet live today because it hasn't yet been securing trillions of dollars for years, We don't yet have the accumulated confidence. And so uh, the success of proof of stake is the number one thing that insiders are looking for to continue to build confidence in Ethereum's growth.
1: Yeah. And where are we on that? This is a complex process for people who aren't in the space, Uh, understanding this transition from where we are today with Ethereum to Ethereum 2.0. It's not just a simple switchover. You basically have two systems running in parallel right now. Tell us a little bit about that uh, for people from a non technical perspective who are trying to get their heads around this big idea.
2: The new proof of stake system is actually a brand new blockchain in a physical sense. It's not a new community, it's not a new app platform, but it's a new blockchain in a physical sense. So if we think of the Ethereum blockchain has been in production now, serving live transactions for coming up on six years, it's running over here. And last December, six months ago, the community started the new Ethereum 2.0 blockchain, the so-called beacon chain, it's over here. It's been humming along for six months, Uh, practically without issue. In fact, there was only one issue and everyone agreed that the system performed admirably and we learned a lot and it wasn't a big deal. So there's this new blockchain that's been running alongside for six months, building confidence, building operational expertise, accumulating history. And when that blockchain is about a year old, it will become the new heart of the Ethereum production system. And, And that's the That's the two chains in parallel today that will merge and become a single chain that is the future of Ethereum later this year.
1: So we've been talking about your report uh, tangentially. Tell us specifically the new report that you've just put out uh, that is relevant uh, to understanding some of these financial economics. What were your findings? Why did you start looking in this direction? And why is it so important?
2: Our our report, which is publicly available at ethereumcashflow.com articulates our belief that for all of crypto's history, almost all of the prices are fully confidence based and not backed by cash flow. This is the so-called lack of intrinsic value uh, that has been one of the the main line items for the critics of crypto. And the truth is, they're not necessarily wrong. When you buy a, when Warren Buffett buys a stock, he buys it for the dividend. Yet, when we look at the US dollar as a fiat instrument, that's a confidence-based instrument that's backed by the American economy and the American government, American military. Ethereum and Bitcoin to date have been more like fiat and less like a Warren Buffett stock. Their prices are driven entirely by confidence and, and the expectation that More and more folks will get involved in the space and building the confidence and building the common knowledge that these assets are legitimate. Where Ethereum is reaching a catalyst and really excites us and we believe drives the the investment thesis is that because Ethereum has many more uses than Bitcoin, if you own Bitcoin, you can only do two things with it. You can hold it or you can sell it. And that's just a fact of life. Bitcoin is not and will never be an app platform. And those who claim to be building DeFi on Bitcoin are actually building systems that are adjacent to Bitcoin and not secured by Bitcoin.
1: Yeah, this and- is a very important and uh, in some ways contentious point. Uh, the question about whether Bitcoin can serve as a base layer uh, for DeFi with L2 or layer two solutions built on top of it. Uh, and to your point, the idea uh, that Bitcoin uh, is not able to actually secure the layer two solutions, but it has to be uh, built upon with another layer that does so. It's a really important point and a distinction between Bitcoin and Ethereum. Certainly. And
2: Bitcoin was not designed to be an app platform. Ethereum was invented as an app platform specifically because Bitcoin was not designed to be one. Bitcoin can never be as effective an app platform as Ethereum. And the truth is even worse the truth is that proof of work as an energy consumption based security model is not able to provide security for a larger set of assets than the market cap of the native token itself so let me let me unpack that a bit if the market cap of bitcoin is 1 trillion dollars and 10 trillion dollars whatever whatever we may kind of hope or wish it may it may become Let's say that someone would say, all right, great. Well, we're going to build a a DeFi platform on Bitcoin. And as a result, we're going to take $100 trillion of assets, real estate deeds, sovereign bonds, corporate treasury. We're going to put them all on Bitcoin DeFi. Well, that is literally impossible because the proof of work security is not physically, economically able to secure more value than the market cap of Bitcoin itself. And the switch to proof of stake for Ethereum is so exciting because proof of stake has the characteristic that if the market cap of the Ethereum token was $10 trillion, that's $10 trillion of proof of stake security. We're actually able to secure $200 trillion of global assets on that $10 trillion Ethereum token market cap. It's because proof of stake has the fundamental characteristic that it can secure more value than the total value of the proof of stake token. Proof of work cannot and will never be able to. And this right, Can used, you
1: explain a little bit about how that's possible?
2: Absolutely. The, the intuition behind it is that in a proof of work system, you compete to control the outcome of that system by spending more energy. By inventing faster hardware that does the, the mining process faster, and anyone can do that in a way without asking anyone else. So that if there was folks who were able to come up with Bitcoin mining hardware that was a hundred times faster, and they had cheap electricity, and they were able to do this from a small island nation somehow, they would control the fate of the Bitcoin blockchain because it's it's an open access model based on energy consumption and solving the crypto. Cryptographic mining puzzles. With proof of stake, you control the outcome of the system based upon your ownership of the token, your ownership of the Ether token. So if I have 1% of the Ether tokens that are participating in the proof of stake validating system, I get 1% of the votes. And so if someone wants to try and control the outcome of the system to steal some money, the first thing they have to do is they have to go and purchase on the open market extremely large quantities of the Ethereum token supply so that they're able to get enough votes to change the outcome of that system through their, their voting power in the proof of stake validating system. And, and so uh, that's, that's kind of only part one. Part two is that if someone is successfully able to execute this attack, And and in the Bitcoin world, in the mining world, they're able to get 51% of hash power, and they they control the fate of the system. Or in Ethereum, if they buy so much of the Ethereum token that they get so many votes that they can change the outcome of the system. Well, the defense mechanism, the immune system built into the network is totally different between the proof of work and the proof of stake. The proof-of-work immune system is a limited response. You're able to continually deploy your capital to attack the system day over day, whether you're renting graphics cards from Google to do it, or you've bought your own computers that are your property that you can continue to to run them day over day to attack the network successively. You can continue attacking the Bitcoin proof-of-work network in a capital-efficient manner. In proof-of-stake, what will happen is the community will rally together on a global basis, in a, on a political basis, and we'll say, boy, that entity just bought so much of the token supply, and they're trying to attack the system. They're trying to violate our property rights. They're destroying credible neutrality. Do we all agree that we should fork the system and destroy their capital? We'll just We'll take their token balance, and we'll make it a zero. And that is a very credible threat to as an immune system response to respond to an attacker to a proof-of-stake system. As a result, it's just simply not practical to attack proof-of-stake systems on an economic basis.
1: Yeah, that's very well described. And that's a very complicated concept, I think, broken down in a way uh, that people can understand it from a series of economic incentives uh, rather than technical implementation. I have to ask, in terms of threats, in terms of risks, uh, one threat or risk that we haven't talked about yet uh, is what I guess I could call the uh, infinite regress threat. The idea that you have a 90% concentration in Ethereum uh, and the risk that there will be just a series of other tokens uh, that come up that can potentially serve the Ethereum function, the smart contract function more efficiently, uh, more cheaply, um, more elegantly, and therefore potentially displacing Ethereum. This is an argument that we hear uh, very often from people who are skeptical uh, of the crypto community and it's in its sort of coarsest form, uh, it takes the form of, well, why would I invest in Bitcoin? Why would I invest in Ethereum when I don't know if you know three months from now, six months from now, two years from now, there may be systems that surpass them. Give us a thumbnail sketch of why you're so confident in the Ethereum ecosystem that you have a 90% concentration of risk there.
2: That's right. I have a ninety-five percent concentration of risk in the Ethereum asset because there are
1: ninety-five percent. I actually understated uh, it.
2: <laughs> that's right. It's a lot. I, th- I think it is. It is ninety-five percent, and maybe even a little higher. I just have slivers of other tokens that may someday do well, uh, and the reason is that first Ethereum is scaling. So today, Ethereum does something like twelve or fifteen transactions per second. That's not the future of Ethereum. And that's really important because as Ethereum scales to global ubiquity, if it literally was not able to satisfy the growing demand, then we wouldn't be able to argue that it would capture that growing demand. But reality is the opposite. Ethereum scaling solutions are online now, maturing now, and they will enable Ethereum to capture the demand as it grows to global ubiquity. And now that's the first thing. The other two are, why will the demand prefer Ethereum? Well, there's very strong reasons to prefer Ethereum. The first is that Ethereum has a virtuous cycle where we have an existing body, an existing app community of applications, including financial services, exchanges, trading systems, lending systems, options. All of these are live on Ethereum today and much more. We have an existing body of those. We have our tokens. We have our liquidity, and then those things drive the user experience, the open access user experience of those who want to get involved, and then the user experience drives increased transaction fees, drives increased revenue to Ether holders, increased profit, and then that drives an attraction of new developers who who want to be where. The action is that they want to capture application level fees, which are a different set of fees because there's the Ethereum, there's the fee to use Ethereum directly, but then there's also the fees that are paid to, for example, Uniswap liquidity providers. So as the stream of cash going to Ethereum grows, it attracts more developers, more builders, more investment, which builds the customer experience, completing Ethereum's virtuous cycle. So the virtuous cycle is that. Great applications drive great user experience, drives increased cash flow and revenue from greater traffic, which drives further investment in the building side, which drives even greater applications. And we've just been seeing that that virtuous cycle spin round and round at a mile a minute. And what really drives that virtuous cycle brings us to the second thing, the second reason that, that Ethereum has such a strong moat, a strong defensibility. It's because that whole cycle can only spin as fast as the Ethereum blockchain is trusted. If there was a trust issue, it's going to undermine the ability for new users and new developers and new capital to find its home on the Ethereum blockchain. But because the Ethereum community and, and software has such a strong accumulated history of being immutable, no history changes, as well as credible neutrality, which is that, that all-important idea that if you're a government, put your, put your sovereign bonds on Ethereum. You can trust Ethereum. No one government controls Ethereum. And those two ideas of no changing the rules and credible neutrality, which is, which is sort of like the same thing, but at a political level, those have driven a confidence in Ethereum that has just caused the level of adoption to explode. So yeah. if Ethereum's network effects are strong and growing, and it's just simply not possible for a new blockchain to swoop in and take Ethereum's apps, tokens, liquidity, trust, credible neutrality, developer community, global recognition. And you know, as an example, in recent weeks, the European cent- uh, the European Investment Bank, uh, which is uh, the investment arm of the European Central Bank issued 100 million euros of bonds on the Ethereum public blockchain with with you know their partner, Goldman. That's credible neutrality in action.
1: Yeah. Economies of scale, network effects, things that we've been talking about here on Real Vision for some time, such an interesting conversation. I'm curious, we've touched on a lot of different areas. What are some of the final thoughts, final takeaways uh, you'd like to leave our viewers with? Well,
2: in our April report from mid-April at Ethereumcashflow.com. We had projected Ethereum's revenue at 8 billion uh, for this year. And from May 1st to May 24 for that three and a half week period, and we go ahead and annualize that. Ethereum did 14.6 billion in revenue, exceeding our forecast for the year by over 80%. So uh, we're, just, we're just so excited at the growth we're seeing. We're excited at the continued and escalating involvement of capital allocators, governments, institutions. We're excited that Goldman wrote a report on Ethereum last week. We're excited that more and more branches of the US government have had kind things to say about Ethereum, supportive things. Mm. Uh, so the the future's bright, and uh, it's going to be a tremendous several years of growth.
1: Yeah, you know the market cap right now as we record this uh, for Ethereum is about three hundred and thirty billion dollars, just under. Uh, obviously, this is still uh, relatively new here, coming two thousand fifteen, uh, the initial release date uh, of Ethereum. So it's so very early, but such a fascinating story, such a fascinating case that you've made here uh, today. And it's especially interesting uh, to hear someone talk about this uh, who has the background of a developer, who's a participant in the Ethereum community, and who also serves as an investor. Ash, thanks for having me today. Brian, thanks so much for joining us.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N com.